Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. My show covers an empire forever under attack and needing to find ways to bribe, cajole, or ally with their neighbours in order to survive. The Byzantines have quite the reputation for shadowy diplomatic dealings, which I intend to explore. But if you want to know more about the history of diplomacy, then you've come to the right place. Thanks to Zach, we can now learn what happens when diplomacy fails. single vision fills all minds, that of our independence endangered. One single duty imposes itself upon our wills, the duty of stubborn resistance. King Albert II. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 22, The Dutch Revolt. History friends, believe me when I say that I wish I could release this podcast on a weekly basis. In fact, I wish I had no other responsibilities or things to do other than this podcast. And drinking coffee and running, of course. My point is, having recently acquired something of a summer job, my life has been quite stressful and busy recently. And, even though my brain was in no way academically involved during that time, the sheer exhaustion from the job meant that this podcast suffered. Hopefully you understand, and are not as annoyed at me for the erratic schedule as I am at myself, because I never wanted this podcast to be as ad hoc in its release dates, just like I never want this podcast to undergo any kind of subscription service or release any paid-for premium content. What you see and hear is what you get, and it will always be free, so those rumours I've been hearing about me starting up some Sponsor Me For This Episode program are just that. Rumours. And you have my word that When Diplomacy Fails will be available to everyone with any kind of device and an internet connection. Because learning is fun and should never cost anything. Rambling aside, let's set the scene here. First of all, a big thanks to all who participated in the When Diplomacy Fails competition, and I promise there will be more to come in the future. Benjamin Ashwell was the winner this time around, but you'll have to wait and see to find out what war he's chosen. I'll give you a hint though we'll be jumping back into a familiar era. I'd also like to thank listeners Mrs. Robbie, Will and Jeff for their donations, and I'm glad to hear that even 14-year-olds can enjoy my baby. Thanks to all of you for not really complaining and apparently enjoying the new podcast layout also. 
A lot of you have also commented on the music I used in the last episode, and said that it really set the scene quite effectively, so expect that new style to continue. So the Dutch Revolt then, where does that one even start? Well, as a matter of fact, that question in itself is still up for debate, but as usual, we'll do our very best. So I will now take you to the year 1519, when Charles V was crowned Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, King of Spain, and master of one of the largest land empires yet seen in living memory. last left Charles V in 1519, he was ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, that giant swathe of territory cut out of the centre of Europe, and he was King of Spain. Charles's rule of the two empires lasted until 1555, when Charles abdicated the two thrones after suffering a severe onset of gout. The Holy Roman Empire and its lands would pass to his brother Ferdinand, soon to become Ferdinand I of the Holy Roman Empire while everything Spain owned would pass to his son Philip, soon to become Philip II of Spain. The Spanish Empire now had, for the first time in history, a king who could claim sole authority over both Castile and Aragon, and a king who was both Spanish and Spanish alone, while still being a Habsburg. Thus Philip was quite an important king for Spain, though he would come to represent Spain at both its very best and very worst during his reign. We'll hear more about Philip in later years, as he has a very important part to play in the 16th century. Habsburg politics and previous dynastic policies meant that two branches would exist from here on in, one in Austria ruling over the HRE, and one in Spain ruling over its empire. Philip saw himself as Spanish, however, and did not balance the Austrian and Spanish customs as effectively as his father Charles V had. Thus, once his father Ferdinand died, Philip would miss out on the opportunity to unify the two lands as Charles had done. Since by the time Ferdy did die after years of campaigning against the Ottomans, which deserves a podcast in itself in my view, in 1564, neither side was immediately drawn to the idea of Philip returning to Austria and ruling there also, with Philip feeling like an outsider in his uncle's Habsburg lands, while the Austrian Habsburgs viewing him as a Spanish foreigner. Therefore, Ferdy's successor was his son, and Philip II's cousin Maximilian II, splitting the two branches of Habsburg apparently for good, and somewhat souring relations between the two lines, since the infighting that had occurred regarding Philip's will-he-won't-he status with regards to the HRE caused a rift between Charles V, until he died in 1559, and his brother Ferdy. In any case, it's not vitally important that you know who was ruling who, since we're not really after names here. I've ran through a brief story on what's what, so that when I refer to both Spain and the HRE as Habsburg kingdoms, you won't get confused. Finding a start date for the Dutch Revolt is quite the challenge. It's not the kind of event where you can just point and say, this is where it began. There's no unifying grand event or great symbol for Dutch patriots to flock to. There's no single unifying characteristic of all Dutch men and women who lived in the Spanish-owned Netherlands during the period. Rather, the Dutch Revolt is a complex series of events, 
most of which may overlap but which do not directly connect per se. It has been disputed whether it can even be called a revolt at all, or whether it was instead the work of Dutch nobles or magnates who wished for greater autonomy, or who feared for their waning significance, and saw the potential in Dutch commerce. Graham Darby, editor of the book The Origins and Development of the Dutch Revolt, comments on the difficulty in pinpointing the Dutch Revolt in history. Quote, If you asked a group of history students the date of, say, the Reformation, or the French Revolution, or the First World War, hopefully you would be told 1517, 1789, or 1914, respectively. However, if you then asked them the same question about the Dutch Revolt, you would be much less likely to receive a consensus. Moreover, if you asked a group of experts, you might get even less. The problem with the Dutch Revolt is that it is a highly complex series of events, or even episodes, some of which are self-contained. Indeed, in many ways the single title Dutch Revolt is deceptive, as it is an umbrella term covering a number of different uprisings in different places at different times, which only rarely coincided. When they did coincide, as they did from 1576, what we observe is a number of different elements. The Northern Provinces Rebellion, noble discontents in the South, and the ambitions of the House of Orange, cooperating in what proved to be a fragile and short-lived alliance. End quote. So it's not just me, then. Graham continues, quote, Thus the Dutch Revolt did not happen at just one moment. It evolved over a period of time and underwent numerous changes before eventually coalescing into a conscious desire among some provinces to achieve independence from Spanish rule. Because of this, it is very difficult to pick a date and state categorically that it began at this point. The journey to independence was not a straightforward one. Similarly, it is equally difficult to decide on a date for its successful conclusion. At what point can we say that the Dutch Republic had emerged as an independent entity? In 1579, 1581, 1590, 1609? Not until 1648 did Spain recognise Dutch independence, though it had been implicit not so much a controversial topic in history, but certainly a very convoluted one. Well, for sheer historical interest, of course. Have you ever given a thought to the Dutch Empire and wondered how that part of Europe A. was ruled by Spain in the first place, B. managed to successfully break away from the greatest empire of the day, and C. went on to undertake some of the most ambitious imperial ventures the world had ever seen? Well, I have, and I feel that our 16th century narrative will be incomplete without considering the dramatic implications of the emergence of the Dutch state in world affairs. So that about wraps up the justification. Let's get into the actual meat of the episode now. Once Philip's reign began, it was Spain who could claim a huge empire, not just in Europe, but across the world. Geoffrey Parker, in his brilliantly titled book, The World is Not Enough, The Imperial Vision of Philip II of Spain, notes on the gradual acquisition of the lands now under Philip's control. Quote, How did this unprecedented dominance arise? Three distinct imperial strategies can be detected. Two positive, one negative. First, matrimony, or, in the aphorism of the time, others make war, you, happy Habsburgs, marry. 
The union of Maximilian of Habsburg with Mary of Burgundy linked the Austrian lands in East Central Europe with the distant Netherlands. The marriage of their son, Philip, with Joanna of Spain, added equally distant Castile, with his acquisitions in North Africa and the Americans, and Aragon, with outposts in Sardinia, Sicily and Naples. In 1519, their son Charles V, having succeeded to all these scattered territories, added the imperial dignities as well. Marriages also took place between Spain and Portugal, multiple marriages, just in case one failed to produce the desired amalgamation of territories. End quote. And Geoffrey Parker continues his tracing of the Spanish Empire. Quote, Inevitably, this matrimonial imperialism created some exclaves, isolated inheritances and claims that could prove hard to defend. Here, the second strategy came into play. The acquisition by purchase, negotiation, or, when all else failed, by naked aggression in territories adjacent to, or in between, the fruits of matrimony. Thus in the Netherlands, Charles acquired Friesland with money, Utrecht by diplomacy, and finally Gelderland by conquest, rounding off a relatively compact state of 17 provinces, for which, in 1548, he created a federal structure based in Brussels." And Parker concludes on the third point. Quote, the third negative strategy for empire building was simple. No surrender. Charles V's political testament, written in 1548 to advise Philip on how to govern after the emperor's death, insisted that no conquest should ever be returned. He said, You will inherit and possess them, with full rights and evident justification, and if you show weakness in any part of this, it will open the door to bringing everything back into question. It will be better to hold on to everything than to let yourself be forced to defend the rest, and run the risk of losing it. If your predecessors with the grace of God held on to Naples and Sicily, and also the Low Countries, against the French, you should trust that he will assist you to keep what you have inherited. End quote. So Philip was utterly determined to not just expand the greatness of Spain, but also to hold on to everything Spain had accumulated over the previous century. The fact that this included the Netherlands may have seemed an insignificant fact to Philip by the time of his coronation, but it would come in time to define his legacy as Spain's king. The Kingdom of Burgundy was a large swathe of territory making up the boundary between eastern France, parts of western Germany and the majority of the Low Countries. For centuries since its inception, the Kingdom of Burgundy was an important part of European dealings, until its line of succession died out in 1363 and the kingdom passed by inheritance to King John the Good of France. Now reduced to a mere duchy, the now extinct House of Burgundy was merged with the ruling House French of Vola to form the House of Vola Burgundy, and the duchy replaced its king for a duke, who both rarely got on with and was always a blood relative of the kings of France. Philip the Bold was perhaps the most important of these dukes. In 1369, he married Margaret III, Countess of Flanders, and unified the county and entire duchy of Burgundy with the rich lands of Flanders, which covered modern-day Belgium and most of the Netherlands. The interesting fact about the Dukes of Burgundy is that, although they were related to the kings of France and members of the House of Valla Burgundy, they still strived to acquire for the Duchy of Burgundy as much sovereignty and power as possible, and the bettering and empowering of their duchy through marriage was a good example of this strategy. 
Phil would go even further to advance his now swollen Duchy of Burgundy Flanders by marrying off his two children to Margaret and William of Bavaria, whose father Albert happened to be Count of Holland and Hainault. This meant that when Philip the Bold's grandson Philip the Good came to rule, he was able to unite Burgundy and Flanders together with the rich counties of Holland and Hainault, roughly composing the Northern Netherlands and certainly their most profitable regions. Through a combination of brief power struggles, often manifesting themselves in civil wars within single cities, and strategic purchases, the Duchy of Burgundy came to rule the entirety of the modern-day Netherlands by 1450. Things soon became more complicated, however, once Charles the Bold, son of Philip the Good, died in 1477, ending the Voila Burgundy line of succession for good. Hearing the news, the French king, Louis XI, declared the duchy to be extinct, and attempted to absorb it into France's territory. The last surviving descendant of the Voila Burgundy line was Mary of Burgundy, who, to give you an idea of just how far the Duchy of Burgundy had come since its inception in 1363, went by the totally breathtaking title of Mary, Duchess of Brabant, Limburg, Lothier, Luxembourg and Guelders, Magravine of Namur, Countess Palatine of Burgundy, Countess of Artois, Flanders, Charolais, Hainau, Holland, Zealand, and Zutphen. She was also known as Mary the Rich to her friends. Two important things happened during Mary's rule of what remained of the Duchy of Burgundy. For starters, the French King Louis XI strongly desired his son, Charles VII, to marry Mary so that the lands in the Low Countries, which he hadn't taken outright, would become the birthright of French kings since even at this early stage, Europe recognised the strategic and financial importance of the region. But Mary declined, and instead decided to marry Austrian Archduke Maximilian I, setting in motion a chain of events between the Habsburgs and the French that did not fully stop until the War of the Spanish Succession two centuries later. This was the first thing, because Mary's rule over what was basically just the Low Countries passed on to her descendants. And if we remember what happens to the Habsburg line, in that it ends up spilling over into Spain, then we can finally make the connection between Spain and the Netherlands that has been the actual purpose of this history lesson all along. The second important thing was what the Netherlands did when Mary initially asked for help early on in her reign, before she had Maximilian and the Habsburgs to comfort her. The Dutch counties of Holland, Hainau, Brabant and Flanders all petitioned for greater liberty and independence under Mary's rule in what became known as the Great Privilege, and demonstrated then, on February 10th, 1477, that they valued their political independence and right to self-rule a hundred full years before the Dutch would even revolt. The aims of the previous Dukes of Burgundy had been to create a centralised Dutch state, comprised of all the different states and counties of the Low Countries, for the purpose of easing governmental rule and to make the most out of their acquisition. But so complex and various were the idiosyncrasies of the Dutch states that they had long chafed against this Burgundian move, with the result that they sought to repudiate its efforts once they got a real chance at doing so. This meant that, for the Netherlands, they had acquired the kind of autonomy that they had wanted, and were now free to accumulate vast sums of money through trade, foster their own political and religious ideas, and diplomatically interact with whoever they wished. It was quite the deal and all Mary got was the promise that the Netherlands would remain in her family line, which was good for Maximilian because she died just five years later after falling off her horse, and the Netherlands passed firmly into the next phase of their existence, as the Habsburg Netherlands.
The children of Mary and Maximilian were crucial players in Europe too. As their children, Philip and Margaret, married two of the children from the relatively new Spanish kingdom, since Margaret married the son and heir of Ferdinand and Isabella, John, Prince of Asturias, while Philip married Joanna and would become Philip I of Spain in the years to come. If you manage to follow all that, then you realise the importance of this whole arrangement. This was the moment when the Habsburgs extended their influence to Spain, and created another line of the Habsburg dynasty, a Spanish one in the process. It was also the moment when the Netherlands passed along with the marriages, since it belonged officially to Philip, firstborn of Mary and Max. It was only natural that he would hold on to it once he married Joanna and became the King of Spain. This explains the Netherlands' status as being under Spanish hegemony, but we have to go a tad further before we're fully up to date with current events. The grand plans for nearer Europe-wide rule by means of marriage never manifested themselves with Philip's rule, since Philip died before his father Maximilian died, and then his wife Joanna went a tad crazy, meaning that Joanna's father and Philip's father-in-law, Ferdinand, continued to rule as king unofficially until his death until Philip and Joanna's son Charles came of age. Now it should all begin to make sense. Charles, son of Philip of Burgundy and Joanna of Castile, would become Charles V, ruler and unifier of the shiny new Spanish throne once Joanna was packed off to a nunnery and Ferdinand died in 1516, and ruler of the Holy Roman throne once his grandfather Maximilian died in 1519. Charles V, who had been named Duke of Burgundy in the Netherlands at age 6, was now the ruler of Spain and its empire, the Netherlands, the Holy Roman Empire, and numerous Italian city-states. His rule was a vital one, as it cemented the power and influence of the Habsburgs in Spain, but it also demonstrated the fragile nature of his dominions, particularly in the Netherlands, since the Dutch were only so willing to tolerate him and his attempts to centralise their lands in the form of the 1549 Pragmatic Sanction, because he spoke Flemish, and largely left them to their own devices. But Charles's all-encompassing rule could not last, and upon his abdication of his thrones in 1555, his son Philip II became the King of Spain and the Low Countries, while Charles's brother Ferdinand became the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. Philip's acquisition of the Spanish throne made him King Philip II, and his rule of Spain would see an unbroken reign of the country for over 40 years. Philip was also the first Habsburg king of Spain to officially go native and call himself Spanish, which must have seemed great to his Spanish subjects, but his Dutch subjects would have looked at this new thoroughly Spanish monarch and likely resented his rule and what it meant for Dutch sovereignty. Philip II was no Charles V. He did not speak Flemish, he did not try to understand the complex characteristics of the Dutch countries and cities, and he wanted to streamline their entire system of governance. What Philip did know was that the Netherlands made Spain very, very rich, and the trade brought into Antwerp alone set Spain miles ahead in the financial race. Combine this with the considerable spoils flowing in from the New World, in the form of gold and other precious resources such as spices, and it shouldn't come as any surprise that Spain was the richest, most glorious kingdom in the entire world. Most of the time. As was the usual for states on top of their game though, and as we saw before, the world really was not enough for Philip. He desired more. More power, more wealth, and more influence. 
the kingdom that Spain would make famous by sending an armada after it in 1588, was actually pledged to unify with it in 1554. Philip II was to marry Mary I, predecessor to Elizabeth I, and the act was passed in Parliament in April 1554, before Philip was officially the King of Spain. Part of the text read, Whereas most instant sooth had been made to your most excellent majesty, on behalf of the most noble and most victorious Prince Charles, Emperor of Rome, for marriage to be had between your highness and his only son and heir, the noble prince, Philip of Spain, whereupon to the pleasure of Almighty God, to the comfort of your most noble person, and to the great and singular honour, wealth, benefit, and commodity of this realm of England, and all of us, your most humble and obedient subjects of the same, there hath passed and concluded in two sundry treaties certain pacts and covenants touching the said marriage, with dependencies and circumstances of the same. And in the one treaty these articles, first it is covenanted, and agreed that as conveniently may be, true and perfect marriage, by the words of the time present, shall be contracted, solemnized and consummated in England, between the said most noble prince and the said most virtuous lady, the queen by force of which marriage so celebrated and consummated, the said most noble Prince Philip shall, during the said marriage, have and enjoy jointly together with the said most gracious queen his wife, the style, honour and kingly name of the realms and dominions unto the said most noble queen appertaining, and shall aid her highness, being his wife, in the happy administration of her grace's realms and dominions, the rights, laws, privileges and customs of the same realms and dominions being nevertheless preserved and maintained. Mary was the perfect match for Philip because Mary was attempting to pull England back from its Protestant direction. The Protestant Reformation would become a key issue for Philip, especially with regards to the Netherlands, but at the time he treated the marriage with Mary as politically motivated, and lamented its end in 1558 only because by then he was Spain's king, and because Mary's replacement Elizabeth was a monarch keen to continue England's march towards Protestantism. In the early years of his reign, Phil was in fact in the Netherlands as he began something of a tour of his kingdom. However, while he tried to balance his attention between Spain, England and the Netherlands, Phil made the decision to appoint his own reps in his place to sit on the States General of the Netherlands, a political body that had come to represent Dutch sovereignty itself. However, Phil made the erroneous decision to not just appoint his own reps to the States General, but also to ensure that they gained a level of influence which placed them above the pecking order of the Dutch Old Guard present in the body, a move which seriously irked the Dutch nobility and politically active classes. The States General had always been a delicate device, designed to balance power between regional and local governments in the Netherlands, and Phil's interference in it for the sake of what Phil saw as necessarily streamlining it for more effective use by Spain, had the knock-on effect of alienating those in the Netherlands who were proud of not just their own identity as Dutch men and women, but also for their own individual local identity within their respective townships and counties. Phil was never able to understand the Dutch, and I think this was the preceding cause of the revolt before any other factors can be brought into question. So different were the ideals of republicanism, the methods of government on a local, micro level, and the culture of regional independence, not just from foreign powers but also from one another, that Spanish moves to change the system were always going to cause offence. Perhaps, though, Philip's rule of the Netherlands would have continued had these issues been smoothed over and the original political balance been restored to the Dutch. Instead of this, though, 
Philip ratcheted up his interference policies in numerous areas, all of which the Dutch saw as a direct defence to their liberties, in the regions of tax, religion and direct government. Martin van Gelderen, in his book The Dutch Revolt, sets the background of the event nicely. Quote, On a late October afternoon in 1555, the political elite of the Low Countries gathered in the Great Hall in the Ducal Palace in Brussels. The principal nobles, clergymen and representatives of the major towns in the Netherlands had come to bid farewell to Charles V. The Emperor, a native of Ghent, answered for his life and deeds and renounced an impressive array of titles in favour of his son Philip. It was a ceremony of both grandeur and disillusionment. For although Charles seemed like a broken man, the very fact that his son inherited all the titles covering the 17 provinces of the Netherlands, as they were known, could be seen as the crown on the policy of centralisation of the Burgundy-Habsburg dynasty in the Low Countries. After the formal unification of the Low Countries, which in 1549 had been declared one and unbreakable by pragmatic sanction, Philip was the first, and one should add last, to govern the Low Countries as a whole. End quote. And Martin continues with an example of the first issue the Dutch came to have with Spanish rule, taxation, and how that would mutate into an even greater woe for the Dutch. Quote, the new sovereign was probably the sole dissonant in the political theatre played out in Brussels that day. As Philip did not speak Dutch, Antoine Perrinot, Bishop of Arras, had to answer for his lord. Perrinot, who was also lord of Granville, was an important figure in Philip's Dutch government whose policies soon became increasingly unpopular. As usual, taxes were a major source of conflict. In an attempt to improve his catastrophic financial situation, and to make the provinces pay for their government, Philip virtually started his reign by proposing a new series of taxes. The proposal was vigorously opposed by the states of the core provinces, in Brabant, Holland and Flanders, and Philip was dragged into the quagmire of Dutch bargaining politics. The fact that Philip could not levy taxes without the state's consent was an important power resource for these provincial representative assemblies, who saw themselves as the counterweight to central government. End quote. Martin finally outlines the details of the state's general and what the body held as its rights with regard to Dutch sovereignty and governance. Quote, the states were of the opinion that important political decisions, such as those concerning successions, financial policy, legal issues and foreign affairs, should not be taken without their consent and counsel. The provincial states were united in the states-general, which had been created in the 15th century by Burgundian dukes to foster the idea of unity among the provinces, which in turn regarded the states-general primarily as a useful instrument for increasing their influence on central policy. In negotiations, as Philip found out, their deputies never had full powers to act. The basic rules of the decision-making process was that the provincial deputies could only grant what their principals, in their estates far away in the provinces, had allowed. This not only made it impossible for the sovereign to exert the charismatic powers of his office, it also turned the negotiations into a time-consuming affair with great possibilities for creative obstructionism. Although eventually the states agreed to levy the taxes, Philip interpreted their behaviour as an attempt to tilt the balance of power in favour of a sort of parliamentary government. When he left the Low Countries in 1559, Philip decided that the states-general formed a grave threat to his royal power and that, therefore, it would not be summoned again. 
end quote. The pragmatic sanction that I keep referring to occurred in 1549, when Charles V had attempted to centralise the Netherlands by declaring that they were, from that date forward, one state, and therefore could not be broken up by individual marriage or by provincial quests for solidarity. This meant that one could not marry into or have the county of Holland, for example, as their birthright. It was the Netherlands or nothing, and the Netherlands belonged solely to the Habsburgs. That was perhaps the first strike the Dutch could see. Under Philip, they would come to see many more. Taxation began to be an issue for the Dutch around the time of Philip's ascension to the Spanish throne, because Spain was completely broke by the time of the mid-1550s. Wars with France, the Ottomans, and additional smaller enemies found in the rebellious German princes who had been afflicted with Protestantism during the Reformation, and necessitated a hasty response in military terms. Responses which the Dutch resented, because such reactions and religious rebelliousness went against the Dutch sense of liberty that had long been proposed. It was also costing a bomb to finance everything, and by the time the Peace of Cato Cambresi was signed on April 3, 1559 with Henry II of France, ending the Franco-Spanish War that had begun in 1551, the Dutch had been stretched to their financial breaking point. The Dutch nobility were by their own definition self-made men, having risen through the ranks of political relevance by acquiring vast sums of money through trade, enough money to earn them enough influence to earn them a seat on the States General of the Netherlands. But Philip, having learned of the States General's danger firsthand, had been busy appointing his own reps and favourites to the Dutch body, bypassing the code of conduct at the time and undermining the success of every individual Dutch man who had strived so hard to get there in the first place. It also went without saying that these new Spanish reps were trying to actively intervene in the affairs of the Netherlands by pushing through new taxes and improving the residence of resented Spanish troops on Dutch lands and in Dutch towns. Then came the rumours at first, followed by the evidence, that the Spanish soldiers were in place not just to ensure Dutch loyalty to the Spanish Empire, but also to root out any Dutch man or woman who dared to profess a faith that differed from Philip's Roman Catholicism. Since its inception in 1517, the Reformation had spread like wildfire throughout first the HRE and then into the Netherlands. The Dutch, having held the traditions of liberty and independence which always seemed to follow civilizations that favoured trade and heavy enterprise, see Exhibit Venice for another example of this theory, were appalled by Philip's insistence on stamping out every form of Christianity that was in any way different to the established order. Protestant Lutherans or Calvinists were ordered burned, tortured, or at least exiled once Philip ascended to the Spanish throne. And while all this was going on, the Dutch nobility couldn't help but notice that the Spanish grip on their freedoms and identity continued to tighten. In his efforts to cement his authority in the Netherlands, Phil had overstepped. In his efforts to make more profit from the region, to hoard more influence over the region, and to create a single religious identity in the region, Philip believed he would make his empire richer, stronger, and more spiritually legitimate. He was not acting especially uncharacteristically for the time. We must remember, he was merely running an empire as all imperial rulers had done for centuries before, with an iron fist. The ideas that the Dutch began to profligate, those of republicanism and self-rule, were both dangerous and new to rulers across the known world, not just in Spain. I don't want to give the impression that history is a one-sided deal on the Dutch Revolt because it certainly isn't. 
Yolanda Rodriguez Perez, in fact, provides an entirely different perspective, albeit one which is so on the other side of the fence, you often find yourself wondering if the author is referring to Dutch people or the Nazis. In his book, The Dutch Revolt Through Spanish Eyes, Self and Other in Historical and Literary Texts of Golden Age Spain, 1548-1673, the author analyses the numerous critics of William of Orange, also known as The Silent, who will soon be seeing a great deal of. Quote, The Chronicle of Jesuit del Rio is full of critical remarks concerning William of Orange. The ambition and greed of the prince is emphasised right from the start. Del Rio relates how the prince secretly amassed money for himself in Holland, thereby deceiving the states general. He also managed to obtain money by selling the bells he had taken out of the churches, while he had others melted down for artillery, so that the Catholic faith would gradually be forgotten. William of Orange trusted nobody, yet everybody trusted him. He was the Delphic Apollo, the oracle of the rebels. Del Rio qualifies the prince's proposals as pernicious. Eventually, William of Orange managed to establish a tyranny in disguise. The good lived in fear, and did not dare to speak or remain silent. End quote. And Perez continues in his analysis of the critics of Will, quote, the portrayal of William of Orange grew blacker over the years. While Pedro Cornijo wrote in principle that the prince had always been a good Catholic, Del Rio claimed that he had been raised a heretic since childhood. From the start, a party to the Lutheran heresy. Then last April, he announced that he was the eternal defender of the Calvin, and afterwards, he gave signs that he was an Anabaptist. This mixing of religions that turned the prince into the universal incarnation of the heretic was naturally anathema in the eyes of a Catholic public. This trait was also adduced to show the suspicious slipperiness of William. He had to be presented as unreliable, as a man without principles who wanted to be everyone's friend. End quote. It is also worth pondering for a moment that William the Silent, a figure long associated with the Dutch Revolt and the Dutch nation in general, was in many ways just as self-centred as his contemporaries in the Dutch nobility. Martin van Gelderen makes an interesting point regarding this and Granville, Philip's major rep who had a head position on the Dutch States General in the book we have already encountered, The Dutch Revolt, in which he states, quote, The conflict over ecclesiastical reorganisation strongly contributed to the rupture between the nobles and Granville, who became part of the inner circle of the new governess, Margaret of Parma, podcast footnote. Margaret of Parma was Philip's half-sister, so this explains the appointment and continues the trend Philip began of appointing Spanish nobility and family to high positions in the Dutch states general. End podcast footnote. And was soon regarded as a top policy maker in Brussels. As such he was, however wrongly, assumed to be the evil genius behind Philip's unpopular policies. In the eyes of noble members like La Morale, Count of Egmont and William Prince of Orange, Granville was usurping power. Their power. These grandees had strong political ambitions, which, since Philip's ascension, had been repeatedly thwarted. Within the States General, for example, the high nobles were continuously confronted with the overbearing presence and influence of professional bureaucrats like Granville. The resulting power struggle eventually ended with the withdrawal of Granville in 1564. The grandees reveled in this apparent triumph. Philip II, however, had by no means accepted the demands of the high nobles. End quote. The agitation of the Dutch nobles was briefly put on hold while Granville had departed for Spain. 
but soon they would be ignited again, as the religious persecution of non-Catholic Dutch intensified. Van Gelderen outlines the situation. Quote, the harsh policy of repression with regard to Protestant heretics, as favoured by Philip II, was highly controversial in the Low Countries, and met with mounting opposition. In addition to the growing number of Protestants, there was a large centre group of people who, while themselves not Protestant, despised harsh persecution for legal, political and humanitarian reasons. End quote. The so-called Dutch Revolt began to ignite then at around the beginning of 1566 for the first time in the form of direct militarised aggression rather than mere words. In this early stage, it took the form of a largely cal- Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Rebellion. In August 1566, the insurgency was given a direct voice and goal, as cities in South Flanders like Tournai and Valenciennes came under the control of Calvinist administrations, which refused to acknowledge the authority of Margaret of Parma and were besieged and forced to surrender in 1567. Margaret was both troubled and intimidated by the revolt of the Calvinists, and paranoia began to grow within the Spanish administration regarding Calvinists and their allegiances. Margaret was advised by her Spanish reps, and concurred that a new oath of allegiance should be concocted to ensure loyalty among the Dutch nobles to the Spanish establishment. Thus, while Calvinists from both sides of the fence fled the country to hide in sympathetic German states, a certain nobleman was refusing to take any kind of oath at all. He was the largest landowner in the 17 Dutch provinces, aside from King Philip II himself, and his name was William, founder of the House of Orange Nassau by way of inheritance, and soon to be the closest thing that the Dutch had to a leader in the coming rebellion. William of Orange was born William of nassau Dillenburg in 1533, and would only obtain the Principality of Orange, and hence add that fruit to his name, 
once his cousin died in 1544 and the principality and title passed to him. The Principality of Orange itself dates back to early Holy Roman times, when it was given a measured form of autonomy based around the city of Orange itself in southern France. The Principality of Orange was roughly 108 square metres, but for whatever reason, the name and inheritance of the region stuck to the Dutch identity, even in 1713 when the region was formally ceded to France in the Peace of Utrecht that ended the War of Spanish Succession. William thereafter became an important part of the Habsburg bureaucracy, serving most notably as governor of Antwerp during the Calvinist rioting in 1566 and 67. His moniker, the Silent, comes from the time when Henry II of France mentioned to William that he and Philip of Spain planned on executing those Protestants in the Netherlands, and William, a tad conflicted due to his original raising as a Lutheran, then conversion to Catholicism in order to inherit the Principality of Orange, then fears to the intentions of the more radical Calvinists, remained silent. It is worth pointing out that the Calvinist revolts in Flanders in the late 1560s did not hold a great deal of support, but only because the revolts appeared so radical, and William of Orange, much like his noble contemporaries, were conservative by their nature. William was thus a little horrified by the events of the Bieldenstorm, or iconoclastic riots, that took place in late 1566, that some historians argue began the Dutch revolt itself. The Bieldenstorm itself refers to the sweeping trend across the Netherlands that involved disorderly Calvinist and other Protestant mobs uprooting and burning various Catholic symbols. It literally means statue storm, and refers specifically to the events of 1566-67, although iconoclastic rites themselves were common throughout the 16th century. Nicholas Sander, an English Catholic exile who was Professor of Theology in the old University of Louvain, described the events that unfolded when the building storm spread to Antwerp, specifically Antwerp's Church of Our Lady. He wrote, These followers of these new preaching threw down the graven and defaced the painted images, not only of Our Lady, but of all others in the town. They tore the curtains, dashed in pieces the carved work of brass and stone, broke the altars, rested the irons, conveyed away or broke the chalices, pulled up the brass of the gravestones, not sparing the glass and the seats which were made about the pillars of the church for men to sit in. The blessed sacrament of the altar they trod under their feet, and, horrible it is to say, shed their stinking piss upon it. These false brethren burned, and rent not only all kind of church books, but moreover destroyed whole libraries of books, of all sciences and tongues. Yea, the holy scriptures and the ancient fathers, and tore in pieces the maps and charts of the descriptions of countries. Indeed, the anger from the for so long persecuted religious denominations had exploded, putting William the Silent, as governor of Antwerp, in a very awkward position. While the rioters battered at his city gates, those Calvinists within Antwerp petitioned to be allowed out of the city in order to meet their like-minded countrymen, and to hear them preach. In his gut, you get the feeling Will realised that holding people back from this kind of thing was wrong, and, along the same characteristically Dutch trait that so puzzled foreign influences, strong arguments would be made for religious liberty, since favouring one side over the other created such volatile situations as the ones endured by Antwerp, and the rest of the Northern Netherlands, for 1566-67. to 67. 
The symbolic defeat of the Calvinists in the Battle of Osterville on March 13, 1567, when pitted against a professional Spanish army, was a turning point for many Calvinists, because they now faced the options of martyrdom, fleeing the country, or hiding with sympathetic relatives or friends. Even at this moment, Will stayed on the fence, primarily because choosing one side over the other was too serious a statement to make i.e. by siding with Margaret and taking her oath, he would have chastised all religious factions except for the Catholics. Or, by siding with the radical Calvinists, he would have both intimidated the moderates and outraged the Spanish administration. As is the usual trend then, William's hand is forced not by his own conscience, but by the miscalculations of the very administration he was supposed to be serving. When Philip learned of the results of the Battle of Osterville, he sent his favourite general, Fernando Alvarez de Toledo, Duke of Alva, to assume control of the Netherlands. Alva was told to create new council of troubles, whereby those convicted of religious heresy, and therefore sedition, could be tried and sentenced. In reality though, this council was merely a fancy way of executing people, and nearly 3,000 Dutch were imprisoned, tortured and executed within a few months so it's hardly surprising that it soon gained the moniker Council of Blood. Among those called to face its judgement was William the Silent himself, a curious decision on the part of Philip since William was so popular and to martyr him was surely not wise. In the event though, William failed to turn up for his hearing and upon learning of this, Alva had him named an outlaw. This was a mistake, as they now forced Will's hand. As the richest man in the Netherlands by way of his extensive land ownership, Will could afford to finance various Protestant privateer bands that began to spring up, both on land and at sea. By far the most famous of these were the Watergozen, or Sea Beggars, parties of privateers and pirates who swore fealty to William of Orange. In 1568 the revolt started to take shape as two key battles were fought. One was won by the Dutch rebels when their army under the command of Louis of Nassau, brother of William, defeated a Spanish army in the Battle of Heligerlee on 23rd of May. The second battle was a loss for the Dutch, as Alva personally led a Spanish army to destroy the now conflicted Dutch army taking refuge in North Germany. This battle of Jemingen on the 21st of July resulted in the near complete destruction of Louis's army, though Louis himself escaped. Upon learning of this loss, William retreated to his lands in Nassau to plan another strategy. Historians thus date the beginning of the Eighty Years' War from this point, 1568, when the Dutch Republic was barely considering itself an independent or even united entity, and when the greatest kingdom of the time was impressing its right to rule over it. For Philip, it was a war he believed he could win. For William, the ideas of Dutch independence though they had yet to fully materialise, were certainly present enough in his mind to know that his cause was just. Over the next few decades, his cause would acquire a whole new meaning, because what began as a religious quarrel had begun to escalate into something far more significant. The foundations were being set for what would be the first successful secession from an empire in no memory, the time when the Dutch broke away from Spain to form their own state, and create their own empire. While William bode his time in his ancestral lands, events around the world were taking an interesting turn. England had been thoroughly transformed in its Protestant Reformation, 
While it did not take on the characteristics of more radical movements on the continent, it was still notably different from that of Spain. It was Church of England, not tied down to Rome any longer, and this fact seriously bothered Philip. What was clear by now was the division created by the Reformation throughout Europe. Even while the Ottomans were banging at the gates of Vienna, Christian Europe still found time to quarrel over the finer points of the Christian message, and the Ottoman threat was a very real one. During his reign, Spain would be at complete peace for only six months, and for the majority of this time it was engaged in a series of wars with the Ottomans, while the Ottomans sought to undermine first Philip's father Charles, and then Philip himself, by aligning with whoever happened to be Philip's enemy at the time. Interestingly, the Dutch were included within this bracket. An absolutely fascinating piece of history is written thus by Roland Miller in his book Muslims and the Gospel, Bridging the Gap, a Reflection on Christian Sharing. Quote, Suleiman supported the Protestant Reformation as part of his overall strategy, but he also had a religious reason for doing so. He regarded it as much closer to Islamic monotheism than the Catholic approach. Suleiman's actions reflect his conviction. In 1533, he gave 100,000 gold pieces to Francis to help him form an alliance with Protestant German princes. In 1552, he himself sent a letter to the German princes inviting them to cooperate with himself and Francis against the Pope and Emperor. In the same period, he also protected the Calvinists in Transylvania and Hungary, encouraging them to propagate their ideas, and did the same later in the Netherlands. He engaged in treaty discussions with Elizabeth I of England along the same lines, granting also the English trade concessions. Without much doubt, Suleiman's military and diplomatic initiatives in Europe served to weaken and distract Catholic opposition to the Reformation. End quote. As early as 1566, Will had contacted Suleiman with requests for aid, be they monetary or military. Suleiman had responded by increasing the pressure on Spain in the Mediterranean, where Spain and the Ottomans had been duking it out for centuries. Philip's empire was stretched on all fronts. As Philip clung to the notion, passed to him by his father Charles, which we saw earlier, that no possession of Spain, however small or expensive, was to be abandoned to the enemy, that Spain would fight for each possession with the same vigour equally, and remain determined to not merely maintain the empire across the world, but also expand upon it. Reality was biting at Philip by 1570 though, in that the Empire in the Americas was now vulnerable to the piracy of England and France, now that Spain was so heavily invested in the Mediterranean against the Ottomans, while France opposed its land movements at every turn, and England remained a source of religious opposition and political encouragement for the rebellious Dutch, Dutch who were now costing him the money they were supposed to be raising for the wars he was fighting across the world. Simply put, the hold-everything policy of his father Charles was not a viable policy anymore. This is echoed by Geoffrey Parker in his book we encountered earlier on, The World is Not Enough, The Imperial Vision of Philip II of Spain. Quote, Not all of Philip's subjects endorsed these policies. In the 1570s, and far more after the failure of the Armada in 1588, criticism of the king's costly agenda mounted. The Cortes, or Congress of Castile, urged that, although the wars against the Dutch, the English and the French are just, we must beg your majesty that they cease. While his closest counsellors complained that, if God had placed your majesty under an obligation to remedy all the troubles of the world, he would have given you the money and strength to do so. End quote. 
although the Dutch revolt would ultimately emerge successful. By early 1570 it appeared to be finished. William of Orange was cut off from his limited support base and had recently been very heavily defeated, so he had to wait for reinforcements in the form of either French Huguenots or German mercenaries, both of which faced their own problems in getting to him. In the meantime, Phil was kept plenty busy with the efforts of the Sea Beggars and with the efforts of France, who now assumed the position of supporting Netherlands so as to strategically undermine the influence of the Habsburgs. William continued to state that he had no interest in acquiring complete independence for the Dutch provinces, which by that stage were disunited in the question of where their allegiance lay. He wished instead to see the original rights and liberties of his Dutch countrymen restored, and an end to the militarised belittling of the Dutch traditions and people. William stated in 1570, The king errs if he thinks that the Netherlands, surrounded as they are by countries where religious freedom is permitted, can indefinitely support these sanguinary edicts. I cannot approve of princes attempting to rule the conscience of their subjects and wanting to rob them of the liberty of faith. However noble he believed his cause to be though, William was faced with the reality that the Dutch revolt was petering out under the face of stiff Spanish opposition. Then Alva made a critical error when he attempted to raise a new tax in the Netherlands to support the Spanish troops there. A new taxation policy nicknamed the Tenth Penny was introduced whereby one-tenth of all sales except on land would be implemented to raise immediate funds. The States General fiercely opposed this measure, and Alva seemed willing to compromise. The next year, however, he simply went back on the planned compromise and attempted to implement the tenth penny by force. This was the crucial moment when the Spanish rulers from far down south were portrayed yet again as tyrannical, greedy and unsympathetic to the needs of the Dutch who by 1570 had had enough of the financial bleeding of their country for the sake of the Spanish coffers. Holland and Zeeland, the two foremost Dutch counties and the wealthiest of the United Provinces, rose in revolt the next year. Not only did 1572 mark the point where the major Dutch provinces openly rejected Spanish rule, but they also named William the Silent as their stadtholder or protector in place of the Spanish king. This both elevated William's importance as a figure of the revolt and further emphasised to William that there was no going back. Philip was unlikely to forgive him for acting as the leader of the rebellion in the future. So William went all out, denouncing the Spanish rule of the Netherlands and proclaiming himself a Calvinist the following year. 1572 was also a military success of sorts for the Dutch sea beggars, still tirelessly chipping away at Spanish naval influence and power in the region. On April 1st, 1572, they captured Brielle, and established for themselves a base from which they could attack. This encouraged Friesland and Utrecht to join Holland and Zeeland, and in July, reps from all provinces convened a special meeting and agreed to appoint William of Orange as head of the revolt. And yet, the cities of Amsterdam and Middelburg remained loyal to the crown, primarily due to their dominant Catholic populations. Over the following years, divisions among the Dutch rebels manifested themselves, there was the group of radical Calvinists who wanted to convert the entirety to Calvinism. There was the group of Catholics who wanted to remain loyal to the Spanish crown while recognising that change was necessary. And finally there was the group in the middle, who stood for the same religious and political liberties, rights to self-government and sovereignty that had been ingrained in every Dutch citizen from an early age. William would likely have fallen in the middle, and the last thing he wanted was any kind of division, since he believed the best way to achieve his aims and successfully expel the Spanish was to unify all the elements of the Dutch populace. 
Yet William conceded that the population was simply too divided for the moment, and agreed in 1579, after years of bitter back-and-forth struggle that had resulted in the death of his brothers, some impressive Dutch naval and land victories, and the stalemate brought on by Spanish military superiority, to a kind of compromise. The 1576 pacification of Ghent had been a charter agreed to by all the 17 provinces, which had been something of a dream for William, as he believed that a united and independent Netherlands was just around the corner. This was not to be, however, as the Catholic South was persuaded by the new Spanish governor, Alexander Farnese, to agree to remain loyal to the Spanish crown and to sign the Union of Atrecht, a union which joined the provinces of Hainau, Walloon, Flanders and Ara together. In response, on the 23rd of January 1579, William ensured that the Union of Utrecht went ahead, an agreement which created a solid grouping of the provinces of Holland, Zeeland, Utrecht, Guelders and Groningen. This in effect set up a rebellious north and loyal south, and would at least make it a little easier for Philip, and of course historians, to follow. On the 22nd of July 1580, the States General passed the Act of Abjuration, an act which removed Philip II as the monarch of the Netherlands that were united under the Union of Utrecht. The declaration made by the States General regarding the new step towards Dutch sovereignty was made in the States General itself, and the following extract, although it is a long one, can be seen as something of a declaration of independence, since, though they would be under quite heavy pressure for many years to come, and though the Dutch would attempt to acquire a new protector for their lands, Spain was removed as the guiding influence behind the richest regions of the Netherlands for good. Furthermore, the idea is that once a king violates his promises to the people concerning protecting them and treating them justly, that those people have a right to remove that king, were ideas put forward in the most notable instance here. The English, it is true, had Magna Carta, but the Dutch declared independence 200 years before the United States in a time when kings and their empires existed in a state of unappeasable power. The document reads in its opening statements as follows, Quote, As it is apparent to all that a prince is constituted by God to be ruler of the people, to defend them from oppression and violence as the shepherd of his sheep, and whereas God did not create people to be slaves to their prince, to obey his commands whether right or wrong, but rather the prince for the sake of the subjects, without which he could be no prince, to govern them according to equity, to love and support them as a father to his children or a shepherd to his flock, and even at the hazard of life to defend and preserve them. And when he does not behave thus, but on the contrary oppresses them, seeking opportunities to infringe their ancient customs and privileges, exacting from them savage compliance, then he is no longer a prince, but a tyrant, and the subjects are to consider him in no other view. And particularly, when this is done deliberately, unauthorised by the states, they may not only disallow his authority, but legally proceed to the choice of another prince for their defence. This is the only method left for subjects whose humble petitions and remonstrances could never soften their prince or dissuade him from his tyrannical proceedings. And this is what the law of nature dictates for the defence of liberty, which we ought to transmit to posterity even at the hazard of our lives. And this we have seen done frequently in several countries upon the like occasion, whereof there are notorious instances and more justifiable in our land, 
which is always governed according to their most ancient privileges, which are expressed in the oath taken by the prince at his admission to the government, for most of the provinces receive their prince upon certain conditions, which he swears to maintain, which, if the prince violates, he is no longer sovereign. End quote. However, though the date here, made on the 26th of July 1581, seemed to suggest that the Dutch would invite a foreign sovereign onto their lands, division was present even over this issue. Holland and Zealand wished for these united provinces to become a republic. William of Orange had other plans, though. He began to look more aggressively for allies, and believed that in the brother of the King of France, he had found his mark. Francis, Duke of Anjou, was able to call in an army large enough to possibly swing the balance in the favour of the Dutch. William was thus persuaded that the resources Francis brought to the table, and the royal legitimacy he brought to the United Provinces, were worth the possible loss in sovereignty of the States General, and he proposed the arrangement to Francis. Francis agreed to the chagrin of his brother Henry, who was engulfed in French wars of religion, and a struggle for his throne, and he began to move towards Antwerp. When the States General heard of the plan of William, they agreed to sign the Treaty of plessis le tours on the 29th of September 1580 although Holland and Zealand refused to treat, claiming it was too heavy a sacrifice for the sake of a foreign monarch, the likes of which they had all too recently expelled. As the largest of the provinces, Holland and Zealand were able to successfully blacken the character of the Duke of Anjou to the rest of the Union of Utrecht, though they needn't have bothered too hard. Because once Francis arrived at Antwerp, he discovered the presence of the States General, and realised he would not be the kind of absolute monarch his brother could claim to be. Francis then drastically escalated the situation, when in early 1583 he attempted to seize Antwerp by force. For the citizens of Antwerp, having endured a Spanish sacking in 1576, Francis's move was repelled with a kind of ferocity believed necessary at the time, and Francis was in fact led inside the city, the gates closed behind him, and his army was torn apart by cannon fire at point-blank range. While the citizens of Antwerp themselves threw all they could find at his 1,500 men, and also hacked them to pieces with swords given to them by the garrison. Francis somehow escaped, and fled the untenable situation in June 1583, to receive both a grilling from Elizabeth and his brother for his actions. It also made William look a bit silly, since the whole thing had been kind of his idea in the first place. Regardless, the States General now became even more republicanised than ever, and appeared determined to shed the shackles of monarchy, especially foreign monarchy, altogether. But William remained determined that the Dutch needed foreign aid to halt the Spanish once and for all. While entertaining his guest, Rombertus van Eulenburg, on a February evening of 1584, a man probably best known for being the father-in-law of Rembrandt, at his home in Delft, he went downstairs to answer the door and was shot at point-blank range by a French Catholic assassin and sympathiser of Philip II, Balthazar Gerard. William the Silent, leader of the Dutch in both a political and moral sense, died hours later. Gerard fled the scene and attempted to collect the reward from Philip for assassinating the personification of the Dutch revolt, but he was captured only a few hours later. Legend has it, at the same time William actually died. The fate that awaited Gerard, imposed by a vengeful and grief-stricken Dutch populace, was gruesome even by the standards of the time. The magistrates decreed that the right hand of Gerard should be burnt off with a red-hot iron, since that was the hand that had fired the gun that had killed William, and his flesh should be torn from his bones with pincers in six different places. That he should be quartered and disemboweled alive, 
that his heart should be torn from his bosom and flung in his face, and that, finally, his head should be cut off. This all happened on the 24th of July 1584, as the Dutch came increasingly under siege in their own lands. The history learning site recounts the next few years as they unfolded. Quote, William's death might have destroyed the resistance movement if it had happened earlier in the campaign, but by 1584, the hatred of Spain had become so entrenched in the northern regions and the rebels were so well organised that they continued their struggle. Despite this, Parma continued his advance, and in August 1584, Ghent fell. Brussels fell in March 1585, and Antwerp in August 1585. The only main areas not to fall were Zealand and Holland. These two were protected by the sea and rivers. The rebels were in need of overseas aid. France was not a possibility, and the only possibility was England. End quote. Martin van Gelderen's book, The Dutch Revolt, also examines the next steps of the Dutch States General. Quote, the states asserted their sovereign power, and more than ever, the States General became the centre of their federal cooperation. Haphazardly, the United Provinces had found their own way, and with increasing confidence, they are becoming a republic. End quote. The Dutch were now brought back from the brink by the new focus that Philip II began to place on Protestant England, primarily because England began to focus on the Netherlands. On the 10th of August 1585, the Treaty of Nonsuch was signed in Surrey by reps of England and the Dutch. It laid out a complex plan of English support for the Dutch rebels, who the English were increasingly referring to as Dutch citizens. Almost immediately, the Earl of Leicester, Robert Dudley, was sent over from England with an army of 7,500 men to break the siege of Antwerp. Although this effort failed, and the Dutch soon came to resent Dudley's presence for a number of reasons, and he left in 1587, the English themselves were not resented, except of course by Philip II. Philip saw this English act as an act of war, and although Elizabeth had initially seemed reluctant to involve herself with Dutch politics, she had come to accept her role as sole protector of the Dutch, and began to lend them money and materials, and send troops over to fight alongside them. John Lothrop Motley, in his book History of the United Netherlands, 1586-1589, explains the complex processes involved in the Dutch and English collective decisions to ally against the Catholic influences present in Europe, primarily against Philip, as well as the implications behind transferring the sovereignty of one country, in this case the Netherlands, to another, in this case the English. Motley writes first on the financial question of the transferal of sovereignty. Quote, in a financial point of view, England would certainly lose nothing by the Union. The resources of the provinces were at least equal to her own. Had the Queen, as it had been generally supposed, decided to learn whether the provinces were able and willing to pay the expenses of their own defence before she could definitely decide on their sovereignty, she was soon thoroughly enlightened on the subject. If she would only accept the sovereignty, the amount which the provinces would pay was in a manner boundless. The question of defence had been satisfactorily answered. The provinces, if an integral part of the English Empire, could defend themselves, and will become an additional element of strength, not an encumbrance. End quote. Motley elaborates thus on the philosophical implications of the agreement with respect to the international order. Quote, with regard to the great question of abstract sovereignty, it was certainly impolitic for an absolute monarch to recognise the right of a nation to repudiate its natural allegiance. But Elizabeth had already countenanced that step by assisting the rebellion against Philip. To allow the rebels to transfer their obedience from the King of Spain to herself was only another step in the same direction. 
the queen, should she annex the provinces, would surely be accused by the world of ambition. But the ambition was a noble one, if, by thus consenting to the urgent solicitations of a free people, she extended the region of civil and religious liberty, and raised up a permanent bulwark against royal absolutism. End quote. Finally, Motley examines whether, for the sake of peace with Spain, the Netherlands should have just been left to its own devices. Quote, a war between herself and Spain was inevitable if she accepted the sovereignty, but peace had already been impossible by the alliance. It is true that the Queen imagined the possibility of combining her engagements towards the provinces with a conciliatory attitude towards their ancient master, but it was here that she committed her gravest error. The negotiations with Parma and his sovereign with the English court were a masterpiece of deceit on the part of Spain. Philip only intended to amuse his antagonists, that he had already prepared his plan for the conquest of England, down to the minutest details, that the idea of tolerating religious liberty had never entered his mind, and that his fixed purpose was not only to chastise the Dutch rebels, but to deprive the heretic queen who aided their rebellion of her throne and life, were facts well shown by secret correspondence. So far as regarded the Spanish king then, the quarrel between himself and Elizabeth was already mortal, while in religious, moral, political and financial points of view, it would be difficult to show that it was wrong or imprudent for England to accept the sovereignty over his ancient subjects. The cause of human freedom seemed likely to gain by this step, since the Dutch did not consider themselves strong enough to maintain the independent republic which had already risen. End quote. Philip never actually declared war on England or vice versa, but the series of clashes between the two began in earnest once Dudley's forces represented England in the war against the Spanish by the Dutch. Spain's journey through the historical narrative will soon begin a steadily downward arc, but for the moment it poses the greatest threat to English sovereignty, and as we'll see in the future, had the wind blown this way or that, or had a certain commander been in a different place at a different time, then history could well have been very different. For the moment though, we're going to leave the main players there, since this episode has covered a lot of info already. In this episode, you'll have seen the rebellion of the Dutch grow and grow. Next time we look at this era, NWDF 24, we'll follow on the Dutch by looking at their major game changer of the time, the failure of the Spanish Armada, and what it meant for the English, Dutch, French, and future of the world. So I hope you don't mind if I just put a to be continued label on this story for now. Just imagine you being at this point, where the Dutch are about to see whether Liz will accept their offer of sovereignty transferal, and where Philip is contemplating his next decisive move against England. 1585, and we'll set off from there next time. You have not reached the end of this war, because we haven't finished it yet, but you have also not reached the end of this episode, so please stay tuned for additional extras coming up after this. Today's national anthem comes to you from the Netherlands. A fitting anthem for today, as I'm sure you'll agree. The Dutch national anthem is said to be the oldest in the world, dating back to 1574, and is almost entirely about William of Orange. The anthem, called the William or Wilhelmus, was only made the official anthem of the Dutch in 1932, though for years before it had always been something that could rally Dutch patriotism, and largely still has that effect today. The text and tune are remarkably peaceful for a national anthem, and that's part of what makes it so good. So here it is, the instrumental version of the Dutch national anthem.
Today's podlight is brought to you by Brett Heaston's Message to Kings, A Biblical History of Man. Brett's podcast is something of a gem, because it is a brave, admirable, and fascinating look at the history of the world. Brett's podcast, if it were possible, would be categorised under the spirituality and history category, but since that category doesn't exist, Brett's baby actually sits comfortably in the history section. It covers historical figures, most of which you would have heard of, such as Jacob, Noah and Isaac, but it also deals with core themes and spiritual prophecies within the episodes on these individuals. You should know, Brett is, like me, a Christian, but that shouldn't turn you off his podcast just because he makes references to God or is open about his faith. There is simply nothing like this in the podcast world. And someone with even a remote interest in not just biblical history, but also major historical figures, or even someone who has simply heard of these people and events, should definitely check it out. You won't regret it. Brett's style and voice are easy on the ears, and he comes across as an open, amateur historian, not an arrogant, holier-than-thou preacher with an agenda. So, message to kings, a biblical history of man. Check it out by finding it in iTunes and searching it in Google. I've never been the world's biggest fan of World War II, but William Morris Shire's book The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich was an account which I had to make an exception for. The book takes its credibility from Shire's stay in Berlin for much of the duration of World War II and beforehand, and helps to explain how Hitler managed to acquire for himself the kind of power thought unimaginable when he had once slept on the streets of Vienna. It is astonishingly well written, and, as an audiobook, lasts about 40 hours long. You'd be hard-pressed to find better value, or to find a better book to start off your Audible experience with. And you can get this all for free. All you have to do is follow the link in the About section of the Facebook page, or, if you have a good memory, the link is www.audibletrial.com forward slash wdfpodcast. Sign up now to start your free trial with Audible, and to get your free audiobook download, which you can keep whether or not you decide to continue your subscription. BFIT is an acronym that you can use to remind yourself how to get in contact with, support, and inquire about this podcast. I'm sure you probably know what they all stand for now, but let's just run through them quickly. B is for blog, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie, where you can donate to the podcast, see previous posts about the bibliographies I've used for podcasts, and generally just get a different take of what this podcast is all about. The donation tab, which you can use if you want to donate to the podcast, is all done through PayPal, and it's in the top right corner. You literally can't miss it. If I could make it glowing, I would, but it just says donate. So, there it is. E is for email, wdfpodcast at hotmail.com. And while I may be thinking of changing to Google soon, for the moment, this is still the place you can go to email me. Any questions or queries you might have, if you feel like sending me a longer essay or a longer note that you don't want to use through Facebook, then you can do it here. It's very straightforward, wdfpodcast at hotmail.com. F is for Facebook, where you can like the Facebook page, now well past 600 likes, so well done guys, and there's also the place in the About section where you can find important information about the podcast, such as the direct link to the Audible trial, and a few other things as well, such as the direct link to my hosting site. So check it out there, like the page, and once you've done that, go and search for the History Podcasts group on Facebook so you can talk to like-minded history friends and talk to history podcasters who created the babies you are listening to. 
I is for iTunes, where you can do three important things. Rate, review, and subscribe. By doing all those things, you will make this podcast a lot more popular. And it's pretty cool, because we've already passed 100 reviews on the iTunes store in America, and 50 on the iTunes store in Britain. So keep up the good work, guys. And I'm always looking to see when a new review is posted. In fact, I pretty much do that every day. So don't think I just don't see it. Trust me, I see everything. Finally, tease for Tell Someone. Spread the word of this podcast through word of mouth. It's free and actually quite enjoyable because you get to talk to people, which of course is nice, unless you don't like people. In which case, just send them an email or send them a Facebook message. Whatever you do, make sure that they know that I produce this podcast and that for anyone interested in history, it's pretty interesting. Okay, with all that out of the way, I think we can finally get out of here. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails, 22, The Dutch Revolt. Thanks! up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.